Welcome to the Writing on My Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Emanuela Stanislaus, author, career strategist, scholar, and diversity consultant. I'm on a mission to create community for women of color graduate students to complete their graduate degrees with confidence. On this podcast, we discuss all things related to the graduate school journey, including the ups and downs of pursuing a graduate degree. I also share personal stories and bring some friends along for revealing conversations about their graduate school journey and provide inspiration for others to level up as grad students. Hello, and welcome again to another episode of the Writing on My Mind podcast. I am your host, Dr. Emanuela Stanislaus, and I am here with a guest today, a very special guest, Dr. Sonia Arellano. And I'm just going to go through her bio and then we're going to jump right into a nice, juicy chat today. Uh, so here we go. Dr. Arellano is an assistant professor in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric at the University of Central Florida, where she teaches about visual material rhetorics and gendered rhetorics. Her scholarship broadly engages social justice issues through tactile methods and rhetoric and mentoring of BIPOC students and faculty. She spends her downtime sewing, watching reality TV, and going for long runs outside. So welcome to the show, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I am just excited to dive into uh, your background, what you do, because I think it's so fascinating, especially as we talk about how we can support women of color, graduate students or graduate students of color in general, right? Um, Here, you know, I focus on women of color, but why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your doctoral journey? What was that like for you? Sure. I always tell people this is not at all what I planned for myself and that I always told myself I would never be a teacher because they are overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated, and here I am. (laughs) So I would say to answer this question, the easiest way to approach this story is I've never considered myself a good writer, wasn't told I was a good writer until much later in life, and I did not have a good experience in my freshman writing classes. I was a typical underprepared uh, first-gen BIPOC student. And the, you know, comp one and comp two classes I took at the university level, the teachers didn't know how to help underprepared students to improve their writing and critical thinking. So they ended up being experiences of, you know, B's and C grades with markings on my paper of grammar. And as we know now, according to research about writing pedagogy, that, that's not how you improve writing. So once I got later into my master's, which was a master's in literature, my mentor at the time suggested thinking about a PhD in rhetoric and composition, which a you know big focus of that is teaching composition. And that idea intrigued me because I wanted to make sure that no one had the experience that I had in my first year comp class, that underprepared students had more empathetic teachers who understood writing pedagogy to improve, you know, writing. And, and really now as a teacher, my goal is not to have students improve their writing. Instead, it's to have students understand everything's contextual. Good writing depends on the situation. So in my mind, I now teach students how to read the situation and understand what is good writing in that situation for them to be successful in whatever situation that is. So long story short, that is how I, that's how I got to my PhD. My mentor, you know, guided me through that process. I applied to three PhD programs. I thought I would never get in. I got rejected from one, waitlisted at one and accepted at one. And I ended up going to the University of Arizona, which is where I was originally waitlisted. And it was, I I didn't know enough as a first gen college graduate and a first gen master's student to really know anything about how to choose a program. I laughed thinking about my, my, uh, what do you call it? My statement of purpose was just very non-traditional, but 
I made it and I'm so thankful I ended up at a great place that was just the place for me, but I didn't really know it going into it. Awesome. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And I think there's so much in there that I kind of want to dig into, especially when you talk about, you know, your work being aligned with helping, you know, students to be better writers. And then we know to graduate school is all about writing. It's all about <laughs> being better interpreters of, of what you're reading, being able to uh, synthesize information and share it in a way that other folks can understand and, and learn from as well. And so my biggest thing that folks really ask about uh, me too is like, how can they be better writers? Like how do you have any tangible ways that folks can be better writers? And then in addition to that, how can faculty members really be more empathetic, like you talked about, to folks who probably already feel super conscious and, or self-conscious about their, their writing? Like even me, I have my whole doctorate and I'm still you know, sensitive about putting my writing out there and having it critiqued and how folks will interpret what I'm putting out there. So how can folks on both sides be better and give better feedback? Sure. I think this is something that has come with practice, and I think it's something I continue to to be better at. As far as with students, like as a, as a professor working with students on their writing, that's why to me, my discipline is so important that it's rhetoric and composition, because I think the two work together so much. So in my mind, in order to teach composition, it's an understanding of rhetoric. And the most simplest way to think about that is you know, thinking about what you're writing, what's the purpose and what's the audience? Like, what are you trying to accomplish with this piece of writing or this this composition even, right? Nowadays, things are so much more multimodal than just alphabetic text, which is part of what my work is about. But even in a traditional sense, you know, who's the audience for this piece of writing and what is this piece of writing trying to accomplish? And as long as you either can figure that out or already know that, then everything else can be worked on to fall into place. And I think that's where so many, I think that's where experiences in the classroom from a student perspective for myself have failed me is that, you know, the teacher was maybe thinking either was thinking, here's what you need to be doing, although it doesn't serve you in any way, or not clearly articulating, I'm your audience focus on what I want and that will get you, you know, better writing, I guess, for that classroom, right? But so my approach to it is, you know, asking students, like, what do they want to get out of this? What do they want to work on? And so often students think they are bad writers and they want to be better at grammar and that will make their writing better without understanding really how to construct an argument. I mean, everything we write is, you know, trying to accomplish an end goal. So it may not be an overt argument, but, you know, even if there's, you know, you're trying to elicit uh, emotion in, a, in something, you know, you're still, you still have an end goal, right? And you still have an audience you want to speak to. So for me, um, I think with faculty, something that I try to do with my students to help them improve writing is to read and to look at the genre. So I can't tell you how many times in my life, and I'm sure you have as well, you were asked to engage in a new genre. For example, when I became a professor, suddenly students wanted letters of recommendation from me. I've had no training in how to write a letter of recommendation. So I looked at some, I looked at letters of recommendation and reading them, even ones that had been written for me, you can see, oh, this was a really good one. This one was not really good. And then from there, it's like, what makes this one good? And what makes this one not so good? And I don't even mean good, I mean effective, right? Again, to achieve that end goal of demonstrating this was a great student, they are a good fit for whatever it is the letter is for. So that's always what I tell students, find good examples or find examples in general, look at them, see what moves they make that work well and don't, and then try to work on, on approaching something in that way. And I still do that to this day, all the time. I mean, looking at new genres or just how genres are written, engaging with them and then going from there 
is the number one way that you can improve your writing. And I think especially for graduate students in academia, that's important because I often assign readings that are difficult. And I ask students, what do you think of the writing? How was, how was this to read as a reader? And often they're like, this was awful and it was really hard. And, <laughs> and I think, I don't know anyone who engages with like really intense theory that is really dense and says, I enjoyed reading this, right? Maybe they enjoyed what they got out of reading it, but the actual writing itself, not a lot of people enjoy that. And so I think it's also important to think about accessibility in terms of clarity in writing. For me, I always tell my students, like, I have my mom read the things that I write because my mom is not college educated, though she's very smart. And my, I come from a family of, of math people, so she's very math brain oriented. So if my mom can read and understand what I'm writing, then I've achieved my goal because I do not want to write in a way that I want to be a smart writer, but I'm not trying to write in a way that is inaccessible. And I talk to students about that as well, to think about the readings we do, the ones that they don't enjoy because they're difficult to grasp what they're saying. And they often say, they could have said this in a much simpler way, and I agree. <laughs> so, um, you know, I ask students to think about that as well in their writing and what constitutes good writing and what achieves your end goal in that writing as well. I love that. Thank you so much. Those were some great tips that you had there, realizing or understanding what the end goal is, right? Reading more, because through reading, you'll be able to see how people are forming their own arguments, right? And how in that particular genre, what's expected, what's, you know, not expected, right? In the writing that you do, and then thinking about accessibility too, which I think is a, a big critique for um, academic writing, right? We're like write, <laughs> writing for each other and, you know, other folks are not able to read it or apply it to what they're doing because it's so... Uh, convoluted in, in how they're writing. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I think there's some gems there too for faculty members who want to support students and helping them to be uh, better writers. So I appreciate that. Can you share a little bit about like what inspired you to go into this space where it sounds like the experiences that you had during your freshman year kind of spoke to that, but were there other things too that kind of told you like, hey, this is the route that I want to take and even pursuing a faculty route? Yeah, I think despite um, never being told I was good at writing, I enjoyed it. And I was not one of those people who, you know, read a ton when I was a kid. I was not one of those people who was writing stories when I was 10. Like that was not my world. But I think once I got to college, I had wanted to be a TV reporter is what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be Edward R. Murrow. My, my initial impetus was I wanted to bring the news to people who didn't have the time or ability to read the newspaper. And that shows a bit my age, but the newspaper and or, you know, I guess online news now it's a different world. But uh, so I wanted to be a TV journalist, and that was what my undergraduate degree was in, and I worked at two TV stations, and I was good at it. They liked me, and I was good, and I worked hard, and, you know, it, it was nice. But in that process, I realized Edward R. Murrow's are few and far between nowadays. Investigative journalism is just the majority of journalists don't do that exactly. And I, I think I lost a little bit of faith in, in the work that was done at the TV stations. So I decided to not go that route. But I think even in that initial desire, it was a de desire to like bring something to people who, you know, working class people who are busy or who don't have the same accessibility or time. So, you know, that has always been there. And that element of like storytelling I see that also in the news. That was part of it as well. And so I think once I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do, so here's another part of my story. I moved to Europe. I moved to Spain and I taught English. And now as a grown person, I realized, oh my God, my parents must have just thought I was crazy. I was like, I'm moving to Europe and I'm going to go work over there. And 
they were like, what? You just finished college. Like, how about you get a job in the thing you got your degree in? And I was like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. So, and as a first gen graduate, my parents were very like, what? Wait, wait, wait. I, we thought you were going to go get a job, you know? So I moved to Europe, um, got a job teaching English and it was the most productive two years of my life. Probably I, I learned Spanish as an adult. I did not previously speak Spanish. So I didn't know how that would impact my life, but it has significantly in my community work and in my scholarly work. So that was something I could not have foreseen. And it just served me very well to learn Spanish. But while I was there, I talked and I was also really good at that. My students liked me. I had fun. It was very hard and it was different because I was teaching English as a language, but I taught everything from four-year-olds to like 60-year-olds. So I was teaching in all different types of classrooms, all different types of scenarios. And it was a really interesting learning experience for me that was very much like throwing someone in the deep end of the pool as far as like being an adult, uh, working, you know, learning to teach and also just traveling and learning a language, living in a different country. So that's where I first got my taste of teaching, although it was very, it was a very different, you know, situation from teaching in college. And then when I returned, I started my master's. And although I did not teach in my master's, I worked at the writing center and I got a taste of that type of tutoring and it was really great. And then I think that's when, that's when I, my mentor suggested I go into a PhD in rhetoric and composition. And I think that in the end, I, I didn't know this would be my career. I didn't know this was the, the route I would take of being, you know, a faculty member. Once I went into my PhD, there is where I started teaching first year comp. And then I, I really enjoyed it. Some of the things that are difficult about it are also the things that are really interesting. So for example, everyone has to take freshman comp. So you have all kinds of majors. Most of them don't want to be there. And that's challenging. But it's also makes for an exciting environment. You don't, you're not preaching to the choir there. So that, that was an interesting experience in my PhD teaching freshman comp. And then a little bit later in my PhD, I was able to teach some more advanced undergraduate courses and, and I enjoyed it and I liked it. And I was like this, I'm, I'm good at this, you know? So I think that the teaching aspect the being faculty part kind of just unfolded. And like I said, I always thought I would never be a teacher, not because I didn't never wanted or d don't respect the profession, but exactly the opposite. I know K through 12 teachers and I just feel like they are the hardest workers and we, we don't value them as much as we should in our society. So that, that's kind of how I ended up going this route and being, being a professor. I love that. I, and I could see the through line as you were talking about it, just how everything, you know, while you're living your life, you may not see the connections, but as you reflect back, you can see how that experience during your freshman year then impacted other things. Now going over to Spain, which is amazing, just how the teaching aspect that you had there also informed other things. So I, I love that journey that you took us on. And I think too, this is really related to some of the work that you're doing in terms of helping academia to understand how to recruit and retain diverse voices, especially in your discipline. But I think these are things that can be applied across the board. So are there things that you believe will help academia in terms of attracting, retaining, recruiting, especially as we hear about so many folks, you know, leaving, I'm, I'm one of them as well that left higher ed, or didn't pursue teaching because of the structural racist types of things that are happening in academia. What, what do you um, say to that? Or what is your uh, research uh, bringing up? I love this question because I think my answer has developed a lot as I've been now an assistant professor. I think this is my sixth year. I'm, I'm waiting to hear back from tenure, but it, you know, it's been a hot minute. So my answer to this has definitely changed and developed. And I think my answer is complex. It's not one thing and it's not two things. It's a lot of things and a lot of things together. And so, you know, my research part, one of my research, you know, lines of inquiry has been about mentoring. And that is another area that just kind of 
came about and developed. And really where that started was when I was in my PhD, one of our professors was the associate provost for faculty affairs. So he worked in the provost office with faculty and faculty initiative and hiring. And I was his research assistant. And he had me work on a lot of projects that, and I worked with another in conjunction with another woman in the provost office that had to do with retention of women faculty, retention of BIPOC faculty and recruiting. And so my job, of course, was to read the research, what was said then about mentoring and and retaining faculty of uh, women and faculty of color. And so then I used that to inform, you know, we had workshops, we had luncheons, we had you know, professional development at that university to facilitate what the research says. And at that time, and and this is still the case, the research says that you need all kinds of mentors. You need assigned mentors. You need mentors that come about naturally. You need senior mentors, junior mentors, parallel mentors. Like you need all of the support, basically. You need people who are like you, people who are not like you. You need people in your discipline, people not in your discipline. It is a big lift to be mentored well. And I will say, I am so fortunate that I have been. I have had the most stellar mentoring experiences one could ask for, hands down. And I think that informs so much of the work that I do and helps me to to be able to talk about my own experiences and then also what the research says, what should and needs to be done. And so one aspect is that You know, academia was founded on and continues to run on white middle and upper class values, white middle and upper class ideas of fill in the blank, research, mentoring, service. However, academia has a lot more than white middle class professors now. We're still not even anywhere near the majority, but, you know, more than 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so I think you know, and, and we also have to remember that the university was founded by certain people and for certain people, and that structure maintains. And so what is really difficult for BIPOC women faculty is that these mentoring models, right, these research models, the model of what a PhD student should look like and act like and how they should engage are all based on white, middle, and upper class ideas. And so one of the arguments that I've made in one article is just that we need different models of mentoring, right? Checking in and saying like, how's your research project going? Good? Great. Talk to you later. That's not enough for certain people. And I'm not saying for everyone. And I'm not in in our, our article, we don't, my colleague and I, we don't argue that our suggestion of comadrismo is right for everyone or is inclusive of everyone. That's not what we're saying. We're saying what exists and what is the norm doesn't work for everyone. And we need to be more cognizant of that. So that's one aspect. I think mentoring young junior colleagues or PhD students is important, but also figuring out how they want to be mentored is really important. I try to have a conversation early with graduate students that I work with, with colleagues that I collaborate with about my working style, what works for me and ask them what they need because that's important to me. I also think that resources are something that is important for universities to think about in recruitment and retention. I think that's probably one of the hardest things for universities to do. I've seen all kinds of statements of diversity and inclusion, and I've seen all kinds of initiatives and working groups and all kinds of things. And we can go back to critical race theorists that talk about the founding of the United States being founded on, you know, white land owners and enslaved people and how that continues to affect our socioeconomic status today. And so it's very hard. I've had this argument with colleagues and superiors, it's very hard for people to think like, oh, you should get paid more because of, or any kind of monetary attachment to success or retention or anything. That's very hard for people to swallow. They think it's unfair. And my argument is just simply like, we're not on an even playing field. So what is fair and not fair, I think can look very different, but that's something else that the university has not thought critically about 
at all. Everything is still kind of a meritocracy, but even then, you know, I was just on a research award committee and uh, non-tenure track people applied with tenure track people. That's the pool. And I'm sorry, when, you're, when your teaching allocation is so high, there's no way the amount of research output could ever compare. It's almost unfair to allow because we can't consider that in the award, right? And simultaneously, who gets to do significant amounts of research? Partnered people, people who have more money because they can pay for a daycare or whatever the case is. And so, you know, we act as though these are awarded according to, well, you've done the most research with the most impact, therefore you get it. But we don't talk about, and, and I've read a lot about the concept of achievement relative to opportunity. And that is a huge concept missing in academia in thinking about retention of faculty of color or you know, BIPOC faculty, women faculty. So that's another aspect, resources, that I think is very taboo and the university doesn't want to talk about, especially in, in that framework of achievement relative to opportunity. And then I think the, the last thing I'll say is just back to like thinking about, and this is also a very hard one, the culture, right? Because back to the, the white middle class values in academia, that also plays out in who gets hired into what position. For example, currently I have two women of color colleagues in my department, so it's us three. To me, that's a lot. That's amazing, right? We used to have four and, and one left, but I think that is few and far between. However, our dean, our provost, our president, all white men. And I recently was visiting at a, a university that they just hired a woman president and they just hired a black woman provost. And I've heard great things about both of them. They've come in and they are already trying to move the university in particular directions. And I also met with a, an associate dean who's also a BIPOC woman. Just seeing that type of leadership for me was very impressive because, again, it's a matter of walking the walk, not just talking the talk. And to me, when you have BIPOC women in these positions, in these powerful positions, these decision-making positions, that to me demonstrates a type of commitment. and. That is not to say that just because you're a woman of color, you have certain uh, commitments, right? We know that's not true, but even just the visibility is more than what I currently have at my institution. And I'll tell you, when you are a BIPOC woman and all of your superiors are white and uphold white middle-class values, it's very hard to make an argument for anything for them to understand. So I think my, you know, that's a long answer, but my answer is, I think it's multi-pronged. And I think at the core of it is changing the expectations of what counts, what is valued and who is valued is something that needs to be reevaluated in academia. Now, for me, the hardest part is I remember sitting on a, a panel of black women talking about uh, citation politics. A white woman audience member asked, what can I do to be better, to help, you know, this situation? And one of the panelists said, here's the problem. There's a finite amount of things you can cite in your work. And in order to make more room for black women, you have to remove other citations. And that is difficult to ask people to do. Right. And I think that's the case in any in any situation. There's a finite amount of leadership roles. There's a finite amount of funding for research, all of these things. And so unless people are willing to give up those resources, that power, that space, it makes it very hard to actually walk the walk. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I loved everything that you said. I, yeah, I have nothing else to add, but I think what you're talking about is just the resistance to reimagining higher education, which I think you said it beautifully, like just the characteristics assigned to white middle-class patriarchy 
is what we're seeing playing out in higher education. And it's really heartbreaking when you want to see change, when you also want to advance yourself. And because, you know, there's just old white men and I'm having this battle with myself too, because I know we use that a lot, but I think there's young white men too that engage in, in this, right? They had to start somewhere, but because they're occupying this space, you know, younger folks that are working their way through undergrad, they see this, they only can see, you know, what's happening in front of them. And so folks aren't able to to see or even think that they can aspire to be in, in different roles. And then you talked about also the complication of just because we have representation doesn't mean that those folks will be there to help others like you and I move up right? There are many of them that are occupying spaces and believe that they should be the only, and they're totally comfortable with that. Don't want to ruffle um, feathers or whatever the case might be. And it does no good for folks like you and I who want to change higher education. And I know we're talking about higher education, but this goes across the board, even in, I'm in the ed tech space and I see it as well. And so there's just a lot to change in that area. So Kind of related to your research work is this work that you're doing related to grief. I was wondering if you can talk a a little bit about that, because one of the things that I've shared with my audience is just the very real experience that I've had navigating the death of my father. And yesterday made six months. And as I was thinking about it, it or experiencing this, I was thinking about other graduate students, I'm not in my program now, but I do support graduate students, but thinking about how they're navigating these challenging programs, right? Experiencing isolation, self-doubt, lack of support, you know, from, from faculty members or maybe even in their family. And then they could have this other element of grief. So wondering like what inspired you to do this work in grief? What are you learning in terms of grief? Yeah, it's it's interesting because now I tell my students the difficult part of graduate school isn't actually graduate school. Grad school is hard, but it's doing graduate school while life happens that makes it hard. And I think that's the case just in general, right? Like trying to advance your career and life happening. I, I think that that is a helpful framework to think about. You are not less than or incapable it's just hard to have these things happen all at the same time and i usually tell this story the way that i tell this story is usually that it begins at the end so when i was in my phd program uh, my stepmom was diagnosed with uh, lung cancer and it was a very quick battle with cancer and really awful and i was about to start my comprehensive exams Um, And I was living in Arizona, my family's back in Texas. And so I was going home once a month to see her, to spend time with her and trying to study for exams. And it was really hard. It was really hard to try to do both of those things. I come from a big family. I have four brothers and they're all back in Texas. And so I was, you know, go for the weekend, put on a brave face, come back to Arizona, you know, just be a mess and try to try to get through the teaching and the coursework and stuff. So it was hard. And I think that in that process, being who I am, I feel like also part of who I am is a researcher. I need to like inform myself about things. And thankfully, we live in the time that we do. And so I started to read a lot about grief and death because it was, you know, a 10 month period of like knowing and watching this person deteriorate like it was incredibly traumatizing and so my coping was like let me read about this let me see what others have experienced let me read other stories and understand how how this functions and one of the first books i came across was actually arguing against the idea of the however many stages of grief there are which i found incredibly useful and and fascinating to find something that's like actually this study is not you know not how it functions which i think was one of the first lessons for me was that was most helpful especially considering my brothers and my dad that grief looks different for every person and it's different 
depending on the circumstance and how you are as a person and where you're at. And it's not a linear process. And all of these kinds of things really helped uh, me think about like, all right, this is just how it is. And I think one of the most difficult parts for me was that in losing my stepmom, my family turned to their faith. And, and I feel like we were all kind of like in, in a limbo spot and all of my family turned to their faith. And I just went the complete opposite direction. And I think that they had a really hard time with that. And I was like, I don't understand. I'm jealous of the solace you find in this. I just don't have that. And like, that's, that's my path. And y'all need to be okay with it. And I, I think they had a hard time with, with that in that process of losing my stepmom. But that's, that was the path I took. And that is what helped me get through it. But I think one of the other really hard parts in thinking about graduate school and thinking about doing life in the face of a great loss, the hardest part is just that you, you can't stop being a human. You can't stop like doing the things, right? So in my case, I was really lucky because I was in grad school and I could phone it in a bit with my teaching and phone it in a bit with things. But even now it's like, you can't, you gotta get up and feed the dogs, right? You gotta, you gotta do the paperwork. That's something a colleague and I who work together on some stuff about grief, you know, she talks a lot about the, the paperwork that has to happen when her father died that, that fell on her. And, you know, just all these aspects that like, you, you can't not do it. You can't not, you know, you could go so long without taking a shower. But again, you if you have kids, if you have a partner, like there's life has to continue moving. And that is so hard to do when you're when you're feeling that sense of great loss. And so my experience when I was in my PhD is I talked to the director of our program and told him what was happening. And he was like, okay, you know, let us know what you need. And, you know, so was my mentor and my colleagues were so great. My uh, peer grad students and helping cover some classes and things like that. But at the end of the day, like my, I remember my director telling me like, do you need to take a leave of absence? You know, and the thought of that terrified me, even just having the, the, the time to, to let my mind sit was very scary. And I was like, no, no. But, you know, I think it's something that I see in my students and, I, and even colleagues who've experienced certain things since then. It's like the academic timeline doesn't stop. You know, sometimes I've had students where something happens and I'm like, I can extend everything until grades are due. And then when grades are due, like, I have to give you something. I can't control that. There has to be an incomplete or a W or something on that transcript. And so I think it really speaks to how like just the world doesn't stop moving. The academic timeline doesn't stop moving. Your bodily needs, your familial needs, like those things all keep moving. And it's figuring out what can you let go? What can you bend and what can't you? And it just feels so much in that moment right and i think back to like my coping was i threw myself into my work i took my comprehensive exams early and then i took longer to do my proposal in the end of the like it didn't matter but it was an interesting exercise in working through something so huge in my life while trying to do this very structured also monumental thing that takes so much brain power. I think that's another aspect that's really hard to think about is when grief consumes you, you know, it's not like I'm washing dishes, like it's you're having to do mental work in a PhD program. And so that also is really hard. And I think it helped me to better honor my feelings. It helped me to figure out how to be in a space to do work and to recognize when I'm not in a space to do work. And yeah, I, I think that that was definitely a, an exercise in, in figuring that out. When my stepmom did pass, I think I went maybe two months without drinking alcohol because I was just like, I need to feel this. I don't want to not feel this. And I also started to prioritize. It was at this moment in my life that I was like, I have to sleep eight hours. I have to sleep eight hours every night, no matter what gets done or doesn't get done, because I could very easily see myself. Again, I was alone there in Arizona spiraling in a really unhealthy way. 
And I knew those two things. I was like, if I stop drinking and I get eight hours of sleep, like I can make it through this, you know, like I can feel my way through this, honor how I'm feeling and like be okay still. And I was, and I still sleep eight hours and sleep is very important to me now. But I think it's at the time I was like, what is going to mentally sustain me? And I knew that not getting enough sleep was going to be detrimental to my health at that time. Now, I'll also say, I think one of the other interesting parts has been now being a few years in with COVID. It's really interesting because this perspective with my stepmom passing left me very much like carpe diem all the time. I think it taught me just, I mean, I don't hold back. I tell everyone who I love that I love them all the time, whether they say it back or not. I always tell people how I'm feeling. I always, you know, within reason, eat that piece of cake if I want it. Drink that glass of wine if I want it. Don't do something that I don't want to do. And I think her passing really, like, gave me a sense of, like, you never know. And, And I've always been kind of like that type of person, but I am very much like, I might die tomorrow. And so... I need to be happy and fulfilled because that's never guaranteed, right? My parents saved up and were planning all of these things for retirement. And then that that time together never came. And so I'm like, no, you can't just plan for like when this happens because that's too easy to do and say. And so now I feel like with COVID, a lot of people, not just because of COVID, but I think just the situation of the world have more of that outlook of like, you never know, you got to be fulfilled, you got to live every day. And I think because a lot of people have experienced a lot of grief, and whether that grief has happened through death, or other types of loss, I think more people have that kind of outlook when COVID was, you know, at the height, and our superiors were telling us, you know, how to approach the classroom and things like that, they were like, be understanding if students have this and that. And I was like, I've always been like that. I don't need a note from you about someone dying. Like, just go take care of it. And when students are like not communicating and missing, I'm just like, what can I do for you? Because I know it's not just someone dying that can be a devastating occurrence in your life that can cause grief to happen. And again, I think it's there. a lot more people have this outlook now and maybe are a little more sympathetic. And I think that's a good thing. But also when COVID happened and people were like, oh, you never know. I was thinking, I've been like living like this for a while now. I've been trying to live my life to the fullest while also being empathetic towards other people because you don't know. But I think that in relation to grad school, that experience of grief has really taught me a lot in giving grace to myself and to others. And also I think, you know, keeping the big picture in mind lately, I've been like, this just doesn't really matter. This is just not significant. Next week, I'm going to forget all about this and it's going to be fine. And I think that's also a really helpful outlook. Sonia, thank you so much for sharing that and being vulnerable with sharing the story of your stepmother. And and so sorry that you experienced that. Uh, I think from what you shared, I think a lot of folks can understand how they can navigate grief through that's, you know, really honoring their humanity, right? Like reading more to understand grief, because we don't talk enough about grief at all. And so when it does happen, we're kind of left like trying to figure out how to do things, or maybe we're, we're seeing grief modeled by other folks who don't necessarily do it in the most healthy ways, telling others as well so that you can get the help that you need and accepting the help. Um, That's what I heard with what you were saying. Also recognizing how rigid higher ed is in terms of semesters, right? And things that even if you're a supportive faculty member that you have to adhere to in order to, you know, move forward with the year um, and forcing grades and that sort of thing. I think what you really talked about is something that I talked about recently on a bonus episode is just how death provides us with the precious gift of having the permission to live, right? Like you said, your stepmom and dad didn't get to do the things that they were working so hard, like their whole life. They were thinking about 
retirement and that sort of thing. And, and that was a similar thing with my father. He didn't even get to explore those things. And so what are things that we can do today that honors who we are, what we want, what brings us joy, right? Not doing the things that we don't like, spending more time doing the things that we do like, because that's going to be the things that matter in the long run. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I believe that, you know, the folks that are listening will definitely hear how they can do that. And then also to paying attention to different things, like you talked about, like cutting out alcohol. For me, it was sleep as well. Like I need to get a good night's rest. I also need to eat. So I made sure that I ate at, you know, the right times because I was never hungry. So I would just like waste away, you know? So just how do you care for yourself? But I know too, you've done research specifically to the areas of grief. So like, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. You know, I gave you the first part of the story, but kind of how that developed into my research was so interesting. I feel like I love to tell the story so students can understand you can bring together some really seemingly disparate things that actually make so much sense and are very connected. And so as my stepmom, you know, was dying, I was also moving into the proposal stage of my dissertation. And at the time, I was living in Tucson, Arizona, and I was working with two different organizations. First, I was volunteer teaching English to immigrants and refugees, um, which I had been doing for a while, and I, I just loved that. It fed my soul significantly. And then I was also working with an immigrant intake center called Alitas that still exists in Tucson. And so at the time, which is still kind of similar, but at the time, when migrants would come to the border, um, the U.S.-Mexico border, they would surrender themselves seeking asylum. Then Border Patrol would take them to a detention center. And from there, depending on if they had children with them, they would be released to us. So the Arizona law, Texas law is a little different, but Arizona law, you cannot hold children in detention. So often women would migrate separate from a man with the kid. That way, the man and the kid would be right. So they get released from a detention center. They come to Alitas and we would arrange for them to take a bus to wherever their family was and they would await their asylum hearing there. So we were just that middle ground that would get people clothes. We would wash the clothes they had. We would feed them, pack them a bag to take with them because often they were on a Greyhound bus for about two or three days. And so I was, you know, working with these populations, thinking a lot about immigration and kind of how people end up here and why. And I was really fascinated by the immigrant detention centers because Arizona has the most. And it's the, the situation of it is wild to me. Taxpayers pay this. Private prison companies make tons of money off of this. And everyone knows. And that's that. And so um, I was really interested in that. However, I was at a point where, you know, when you're figuring out your research work, I was like, what am I trained in? What do, what do I do? Then what should my site be? What should I study? So I was talking with my advisor and she says to me, hey, have you seen this uh, migrant quilt project? You should, you should check this out here. You know, she sends me a link to a, an article and in my mind, I'm like, what in the world is she talking about? I'm over here trying to talk about like this detention of migrants. And she's over here like, you should look at these quilts. And I was just like, what is she talking about? So of course I go to read the article and then I end up on the Quilt Project's website and I am just taken aback. I mean, they are so evocative, these quilts. And I was just looking at pictures of them on the internet. So that became my research site. As I started to do more research, I realized there are lots of textile programs that model themselves after the idea of the, the AIDS quilts that memorialize people. And so if, just a suggestion to your readers, if you've not read Ditching a Revolution by Cleve Jones, it's very good. It's the history of the AIDS quilt. So then I realized there's lots of textile projects that are doing this. So my intention originally was to study three of them, but the Migrant Quilt Project was the only one that agreed and or replied to my requests. So I engaged with the people who were in charge of the Migrant Quilt Project at the time was Jody Ibsen and Peggy Hazard. And I went to Peggy's house and she just pulls these huge plastic tubs out and starts laying these quilts out on her spare bedroom bed. And they are just breathtaking. 
I mean, seeing them in person for the first time, I was like, wow, this is incredible. So the Migrant Quilt Project became my site of study. And so this project, they have volunteers go out into the desert, the Arizona desert, collect clothing left behind by migrants at lay sites, places where they stop to rest. They gather this clothing, wash it, and then volunteer quilters make a quilt. So there's one quilt per fiscal year for the Border Patrol that document the dead migrants that are found according to the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office in the Tucson border sector. So it's not even the entirety of Arizona, but in the Tucson sector. And they memorialize them by name, if they can identify them, or by unknown or desconocido, desconocida, which means unknown, on the quilt. So some quilts have, you know, 208 names on it for that year. In doing this research, you know, I read a lot, a lot about immigration crossing in the Sonoran Desert, about migrant death. And there is a book called Land of Open Graves by Jason DeLeon, who's an anthropologist. And in this book, he basically replicates the process of a human dying in the desert. What he does is he gets pigs who are already dead, dresses them in human clothing because their skin and their internal organs are closest to humans, leaves them in the desert and puts a camera there. Now, what he found was often every piece of them disappears. There is maybe a bone, maybe a shred of clothing 20 feet away or something, but between the weather and the vultures, their bodies just completely disappear. And so his argument is that, and this is what many people speculate, but in replicating this process, his argument is that we don't actually know how many people die crossing into the desert. The numbers are definitely way higher than the amount of bodies that are found. And so in doing this research, you know, thinking about the Migrant Quilt Project, how the quilters memorialize these deaths of people we'll never know. We don't know, they don't leave a written record, right? Like, how do we know their stories? And also the part about that that is so important to me is thinking about grief and like who we memorialize who gets an obituary written, whose lives are deemed worth grieving, especially collectively. And in Stitching a Revolution, Cleve Jones said about people with AIDS that their treatment in death was reflected by their treatment in life. And I think that is so true of so many populations that are disregarded in life as in death. And we can look at many different situations where that is the case in this country, right? And so I think that is the important like question to think about across the board, not just having to do with immigration, but thinking about humans and what's important to us. Many of us are religious or feel connected to some sort of like memorializing practice. And there is not a, a greater violent experience than how your your body is treated in death and how you are aren't memorialized or able to be grieved by your loved ones. And I just think there's so much there to really think about and study, like I said, in in a larger frame, not just in immigration. But I think that site for me is really important to think about because these people's families don't get to know what happened to them. They don't necessarily get to know or get to bury them or have whatever kind of ceremony they want to have. The, the idea of necroviolence, right, is just like a huge consequence of how people are treated and valued in our society. So and for me, thinking about the quilts and what they do is that the way that works into my research and thinking about, okay, these white middle class women who are mostly retired, living in Tucson, Arizona, feel committed to this calling, to memorializing migrants. And I think it's important to think about different pieces of the immigration debate, the immigration conversation. And this is how these women feel they can best contribute to that, right? Using their skill and their heart to make a case for the people who are dying. And I think that's important. I think when people find out that it's white middle class retired women who are making these quotes, they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, what do you think? Migrants are making these? Like, no, they're trying to live. Like, this is people in the community who feel compelled by their religion, by their experience, by their just their life stories to be a part of this. 
And I think what's so important is considering how their contribution helps us fill the gaps of this story, right? To tell a story of migration, we don't know exactly these stories, right? And we won't. And that's what's so important to me and my work is to think about how do we study the people who don't leave behind written records, the people that we can't interview? How do we know their stories? It's a much more difficult and unknown process to study that as opposed to, I interviewed these people, here's the answer. You know, that's not the kind of work that I engage in. The kind of work I engage in is what rhetorical feminists call critical imagination. And it's saying, okay, here's what we do know. Now, how can we use educated guesses to fill in the rest to kind of understand this story? And so I think that's an important part of my work is thinking about how these quilters engage with the quilting and try to memorialize and make these stories to engage people in thinking about migrant deaths. So that's where the death and the grief kind of launched me into thinking about this idea. And I think another something else that was really important to me, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the concept of ambiguous loss. I think her name is Pauline Boss, maybe, but it's a really interesting concept. And I think this is at the heart of what some families of missing or murdered people can experience. And it's really detrimental. And so, you know, I won't even get into the mental health effects and generational trauma that then is experienced by those who are left behind. But that's a whole nother aspect. And again, we see that with many different populations, not just migrants. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so like intrigued by this. And I, I think too, you dropped some uh, potential additional readings that folks can look into. So I'll be sure to get with you and, and get those and, and share it in the show notes so that folks can do some additional reading. But also really fascinated that it is white middle class women doing this. I just assumed it was the community, not necessarily relatives, but community of maybe Mexican-Americans that were doing this or, you know, whatever the case might have been. So I appreciate that. And I think you bring up a good question, like who gets to tell their story, who gets to be memorialized, the forgotten people too, right? Like, and how we hear about who makes it successfully and even those who don't make it successfully and are, are sent back, right? But we don't know about those who don't and that the desert does what the desert you know, does, right, with the circle of life. So fascinating. So you talked a little bit about having a mentorship that's kind of out of this world. I'm paraphrasing. I know you said something else. And it kind of ties into some of the conversations that I've had with folks about having their own personal board of directors that they can go to and they feel that they can get the support that they need, no matter what it is. It could be peer-to-peer. It could be up, down, down, up, all of those good things. So I'm just curious to know, how did you build this mentorship network that you're super proud of? uh, And then hopefully how other graduate students of color can go about doing that for themselves? Yes, I definitely have had uh, some amazing mentors and continue to. I would say probably my my main mentor, his name is Jaime Mejia. And I always describe him as a grumpy old Mexican man, because <laughs> he is. And he has been in my corner from day one. And I think that something I always say about him is that he put, he's always pushed me. He's always challenged me. And I think we have a kind of fun back and forth relationship now. But when I was a student, you know, it was hard. But I, he knew exactly when to push me and he knew when to lift me up. And I think for me, that was so key with him. And, I, you know, I had him from undergrad through my master's program as a mentor. And from there, he introduced me to people and kind of got me to go on to my PhD program. And I think from there is where I really started to build this community of people. And I think what I sought initially was people who were like me. For example, to scholars who were already at the University of Arizona in grad school, did a pre-doctoral fellowship where I was doing my master's and they worked with Jaime and some other people. And so I had met both of them. They were both Chicanos, one from California, one from Arizona. 
they were young, they were super nice to me and interested in me. And when I eventually got to Arizona, the woman was graduating, the guy was a year behind. So we had a little bit of overlap. But from day one, I remember I was in my first year of my PhD. And Asia Martinez said, I have some Skype interviews for jobs. Do you want to come sit in on it? And I'm like, I'm not even anywhere near finishing and she's already modeling for me just so I know what this is like, what the process entails. I mean, like how smart is that, you know, to help set someone else up. And I literally talked to her yesterday. I'm going to see her next week when I'm in Texas. Like we have stayed close. And I think that both her and Cruz saw in me someone who was like them, that they could help, that they could mentor, and stayed tight and in connection all along. So I feel like between Jaime and Cruz and Asia, they kind of really kicked it off for me going into my PhD. And then when I got there, I was so lucky, especially now looking back, I didn't realize how lucky I was. But I entered a program that had multiple faculty of color, multiple women of color faculty, who unfortunately are not all there any, anymore. But at the time coming in, I was so lucky. And then my cohort was of six. Three of us were of color, three of them were white. And that was life-changing. I mean, not only were the six of us really tight, everyone asked us like, how did they get this good of a cohort this one year? And I'm like, I have no idea. We just vibe. And actually, I'm sorry, four of us were of color and two were white. That's actually the ratio. And three of us were Latinos. And so we just clicked. But it's interesting because we all come from very different backgrounds. And I felt like that was so good. It was good for me, especially coming from Texas. It really decentered my like Mexican privilege, really being in a border state. And it just, it taught me a lot about migration, about different groups of Latinos and our differences, as well as our similarities. And so having that cohort was just so key. I mean, I cannot tell you the two Latinos now both live in Oregon, which I'm so jealous of. Um, they, they're at different universities, but they're close to each other. And I still talk to them all the time and see them. And I feel like working particularly with the two of them, because all of our work is in a similar realm, but very different work. And they always pushed me. They were so smart and so motivated that it pushed me to be smart and motivated. And simultaneously, because we were different, we had so many arguments. I mean, even after grad school, we were at a conference and we were arguing at the table about some really silly things, but very like passionate about it because that's how we engage. And other people at the table who didn't know us very well were like, oh my God, are they like, are they mad? And we were like, no, 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 this is what we do. We argue about a movie. Like we argue whether Colombians or Mexicans are better dancers, you know, like that's how we are but they are so both of them are so kind but also critical and i think that is a really refined attribute and also ability to have in a relationship in a friendship and so when i see them i think of people who will offer me honest feedback but support me then as i was in grad school i think one of the main things that i did was that i reached out to professors to meet with them and here is where i feel like i really branched out in understanding i need people who are not like me to also mentor me. And I had mentioned earlier, I worked with one of our faculty who was in the provost's office and I am currently working with him on a book. And he is a old white man, like he's retiring. I'm so jealous of him. He's retiring right now after a very successful career. We don't do any of the same research, but he has also been in my corner since day one. And not everyone likes him. Not everyone jives with his personality, but I work well with him. He has always supported me and he's always given me very helpful feedback. And he was someone who made me realize when someone takes the time to read your writing and give you feedback, that is valuable time. Not everyone does that. Even people on your dissertation committee don't do that. So when someone does that, that to me is a huge honor. That to me is a recognition that they see you and they value you because they've given you this time. And so what's interesting is I feel though I've had a few white men in my life who've done exactly that. And for me, that's invaluable because they're probably the population who usually disagrees with my research. So they've given me valuable feedback to explain how to strengthen my argument for readers like them. And again, they've given me that time. And I think that's 
really important. And so my mentor from grad school, he was one of the first people who really showed me the importance of giving me that time and giving me feedback. And so since then, I've tried to identify or take opportunities when they presented me to share my work with people who are from an audience or a background that's different than who I'm writing to in order to get that feedback, to engage more people, to make my argument more persuasive. All that is to say, I've had lots of different types of mentoring relationships, right? Uh, the peer ones, the people I don't really know or don't identify with, and the people who like were exactly very, very much the same. The reason that I feel that I've had such successful mentoring relationships is because they're varied. And I've picked them up in different ways at different points in my life, but also I've maintained those relationships. And that's something I try to tell graduate students. I was just talking to one last week and I said, even if you don't plan on applying to a PhD for two more years, stay in touch with me, stay in touch with your other professors. Let me know what you're up to. Let me know what you're working on. Because then when it comes time and you say, hey, can I get that letter? I know what you've been doing. I've been watching your work or I've been keeping updates with you. And not that you have to be best friends, but just maintaining that contact is very helpful. And I, I always think to myself, you never know when down the line, these relationships will be helpful for your career, will be helpful for advice, um, will be helpful for just maintaining your, your mental health, right? So I think it's important to have those different types of mentoring relationships. Knowing what works for you is also helpful and seeking them out is also important. I know it's not for everyone and it's hard to do to ask for mentoring relationships, but I think it's something that's worthwhile. I love it. So many great nuggets in there too. Thank you for just sharing the examples of how you've been able to cultivate this great uh, mentoring network for yourself. And I think that folks can, you know, really take some uh, cues from your experience and implementing it into their lives. This has been such a great conversation. I could sit here and talk to you forever. I have just learned so much and um, you're a part of my network now. And I just want to see if you could share with folks who want to stay um, connected with you or follow your work and things like that, how they can do so. Absolutely. I normally engage on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at my first name, S-O-N-I-A, and my last name, A-R-E-L-L-A-N. But instead of an O, it's a zero at the end. So my Twitter handle, it's usually where I'm putting things and I'm working on a website, but that has been slow coming. So I'll go ahead and put a link for that in the show notes too, and folks can follow you. And then, like I said too, I'll link to some of the work that you've um, done, especially related to mentorship that you talked about, and then the grief work too, and then some of the others that you mentioned so that folks can get more familiar with your work and just start digging in and, and learning more. So thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your story, sharing your experience. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I could talk to you forever as well. So I hope your uh, listeners enjoy. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Writing on My Mind podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, make sure you follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, rate the show, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also donate to the show by clicking the support link in the show notes. Your donations help me to continue to put out new episodes to help support you and other women of color graduate students. I'd also love it if you can spread the word to other women of color graduate students to grow our community. Also, be sure to follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Dr. Emanuela. See you on the next episode.